Hey, everybody. Welcome to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman. Today's guest is one of the good ones, and I know I say this every week, but I'm so lucky to do this podcast and talk to people like Vince Molinaro, who is an author, a leader, and a consultant. Vince wrote a book called The Leadership Contract, and you should get it. It's really good. Vince's core message is very interesting. He believes that leadership is a decision, and in that way, leaders need to make a choice and they need to be accountable. I love Vince for his pragmatism, for his honesty, for his candor, and I love the story that starts the podcast where he talks about a leader he had early in his career and how that leader changed his life. So everybody, I hope you enjoy this episode of Let's Fix Work. I'll see you at the end to wrap things up. Work is broken. So is the way you think about it. Host Lori Rudiman is breaking things down so you can put them back together and make work something you can enjoy. Let's fix work together. With the Let's Fix Work podcast, here's Lori. Hey, everybody. Lori Rudiman here. I am so excited to have today's guest on the show. His name is Vince Molinaro, and he's an author, leader, and consultant. Vince, how are you doing today? I'm great, Lori. Thanks uh, for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I'm so lucky to have you. We have tons of mutual friends, and people speak highly of your work and your thought leadership in the area of leadership. And as we get started today, I know you had a moment early in your career where you saw the manifestation of a broken work environment. So can you tell me that story? What happened to your colleague and your mentor, and how did that become involved in your leadership journey? Well, I was really, uh, you know, early in my career, my first job uh, out of college, I was 22 years old, you know, wanted to change the world, ended up uh, getting a job in a large public sector organization that did really important work. It helped uh, the neediest people in society get their lives back on track. So that mission was really meaningful. But the culture of the place when I joined was quite dull and really not motivating. Everyone showed up every day, committed to their clients, but just kind of going through the motions. And the senior manager um, named Zinta one day approached me uh, saying, you know, I see what you're doing with your clients. Uh, you're doing great work, but I think you want to have more impact here. And I didn't even know how she knew that about me. And so myself and Zinta was her name and a few others come together under her leadership to really look at changing that work environment. And we started putting some simple things in place to bring more fun, more enthusiasm. And we started to have an impact. We started to see this really dull environment. Can you tell us what those fun things were? Like, what did you do? What were some of the changes? Well, really simple things. You know, instead of people coming in at 8.30 and leaving at 4.30, we had like after work little get-togethers. If we had initiatives, uh, like we were rolling out a whole new technology platform, you know, the original plan was to just um, you know, just kind of roll it out in a very boring way. We, we, we created a whole Olympic event around it to, to uh, you know, make people a little bit more relaxed with the new technology, have some fun. So it was really just being really mindful of how to form connections yeah. um, and how to uh, infuse a greater sense of fun. It, you know, a lot of it was really informal, like pizza lunches. It was just a series of little things under her leadership. Oh, my goodness. Uh, it so those were some of the things we life. put in place. Yeah. 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 It was fascinating to watch it happen. You know, I had a small role to play, but it was interesting to watch her work her magic. Unfortunately, um, you know, disaster struck, um, you know, Azinta was diagnosed with lung cancer, had to leave 
immediately to start treatments and um, she vanished, you know, and um, what I immediately noticed was all the changes that started to take hold ever so slowly started to disappear and that dull culture began to revert back to what it was. But then there was more. I started to see what we call the old guard managers, the most senior leaders uh, really became clear they weren't happy with what Zinta was doing. So they shut down our committee. Uh, they started to kind of marginalize those of us on the committee with, uh, we worked with Zinta. And I was really, you know, uh, confused by all of this because it didn't make any sense to me. And as the months went by and I heard that Zinta's, uh, you know, her, her, her uh, battle was, was a really tough one, I, I felt like I had to pay her a visit, which I did one day. And in that visit in her living room, she just um, shared with me her experiences as a senior manager in what was a very toxic management culture, a world I was oblivious to as an employee, but just the infighting, the backstabbing, the conflict, the you know, up the gamemanship, being more concerned about jockeying for one's next career move as opposed to being concerned about clients and employees. And, and then she said the words that really changed my life. She said, I've always taken care of my health. I've never smoked a cigarette in my life. I have no history of lung cancer in my family. And I'm convinced the disease I'm fighting today is a direct result of being in this organization for most of my career. And those were um, pretty heavy words. Yeah, uh, two weeks after, funny. I got a letter from Zinta. She, she, you know, in her moment of need, she reached out to a colleague who needed some encouragement. Uh, and then two weeks after I got that letter, she passed away. And I had to kind of decide, was I going to stay in that organization? Because I didn't think without her we had a chance. Or was I going to do something different? And, and, and that letter and that experience uh, motivated me to say, no, I'm, I'm going to work with great leaders because I had a glimpse of what it was like. Uh, to work with a great leader, uh, and I'm going to, you know, work with great leaders so that they can create great workplaces and really fix work, and for fix workplaces, and that's what I've been doing ever since that time. So it's been a few decades of consulting work, research, speaking, uh, and being a leader myself. Well, let's stop right there and talk about some of the attributes of Zinta and her great leadership, because there are two things that stood out to me. One is that she identified something in you before you identified it. And then the second thing I noticed is that she shielded you from a lot of the drama so that you can attempt to yeah. do your best work, right? Aren't those two great attributes of a leader right there? Yeah, you know, and I would add, you know, you're, you know, you're really perceptive in, in capturing that. I, I've come to learn, uh, you know, through my own experience and in, in working with others, that what they really value about a leader is that they, they have this ability, I don't know if it's ESP or whatever, but they can kind of get a sense of maybe a desire you have, but you might be too afraid or not confident enough to put out there, and they, they kind of can, can pull it out of you. Uh, pulling it out is one thing, then giving the person the opportunity is something else. And I found that the best leaders where I've learned the most, have grown the most, gave me the opportunity to lead. And sometimes they threw me in a deep end. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. uh, but, but I think that's, that, that's, uh, you know, that's really important. I find a lot of leaders do the shielding, right? Um, you know, that they act as shields to their people, buffering messages, buffering stress that comes from more senior levels. And often that's, that's a heroic thing to do. And it often gets down really practically because they don't want their people distracted. They don't want their people stressed out unneedlessly. So I think a lot of times people that move into leadership roles don't appreciate how much of that buffering you actually have to do. 
I think you're right. And it's so perceptive that all those years ago, your former mentor and boss really understood the link between wellness, physical wellness and emotional wellness. Now, who is to say that her cancer wasn't caused by something else, but the link between your happiness and your, uh, the way you take care of yourself and the misery you feel at work definitely has health related outcomes. And I think that was so prescient. Like she saw that in her own life and it's too bad. It took so long for her to remove herself out of a toxic environment. What a gift for you to see that connection. Yeah. And and, and that's how I, that's how I've uh, thought of it, right? All the work I do, I, I feel really is, is to pay respect to her, right? I mean, she had a, you know, significant impact on me uh, and others. And as I said, I, I have had that glimpse of what it was like to work with a great leader early in one's career. And it kind of ruins you forever because <laughs> yeah. what I've learned in working with so many people is so few people have had, you know, truly great leaders that they can say they've worked for. And it's it's kind of sad that, that that's the case because, you know, for me, work is always in today's world it's how most of us contribute to our society. And, and, you know, it's not that every day is going to be, uh, uh, you know, a great, a great experience. There are going to be tough times, but if you're with a great leader and a great team, it's a quality of your life because if your work is great and it's meaningful and you're having an impact on society and in a company, you're going to be a better person. You'll be a better person at home. You'll be a better person in your community. That's something I believe in quite strongly. Yeah, I don't disagree with you at all. And I think so often we are looking for leadership models, right? We want the seven attributes of a great leader. And you gave us a few, but do you feel that there are consistent elements of a great leader that can be seen in all organizations or does it vary? Like, is there one standard definition for what great leadership is? Well, you know, it's a great question because that's, that's some of the research and the work I've been doing over the last, say, six or seven years has really tried to understand that differently. Because, you know, a lot of what's written and researched about leadership is always looking at, you know, the great attributes of the great leaders. And, and today, the ones that are always talked about, you know, Richard Branson or Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or Ariana yeah, Huffington. All, I was going to say, they're all white or older or middle-aged, right? Tend you know? to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tend, tend to be, for sure. What we found, though, is companies are struggling because they're investing more in leadership uh, development than ever before because leadership matters more than ever because uh, of the complexity of our world. But they're not happy with the outcomes. And as I try to think about, so what's missing? Uh, I, I felt that what we got to get down to is a fundamental connection between leadership and accountability, something that's always been there, but I think we've missed it. And so in our global research, what we have found is five behaviors really describe uh, what I deem as a truly accountable leader. So one who holds others to high standards of performance, one who's excited about the company and shows that enthusiasm every day, one who has the courage to tackle tough issues and have challenging conversations with direct reports and peers and colleagues, one who knows how to cascade and communicate strategy, and one who keeps kind of their, their eyes open, not so head down, buried in, in tasks, but looking and anticipating what's coming so they can, you know, really uh, do a better job of anticipating the future rather than always being in reaction mode. And these, these be five behaviors have, have surfaced globally uh, with probably 2,500 uh, data points uh, with senior leaders, uh, you know, in, in all the countries where we've done the research. So it's been quite surprising to me how consistent the theme of accountability and leadership accountability has been emerging in my work. 
I love those behavioral traits because they work in hierarchical organizations where you've got like a VP, a director, a manager, but they also seem to work in this new world of work where, I don't know, quite honestly, all of us are leaders. There is no excuse to have your head buried, right? There's no excuse to hoard information anymore. And so it seems like this model is really driving to the future of work where we are all our own talent agents, and we're all responsible for a component of leadership in an organization. I don't know. What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. You know, as you, as we move to you know more networked models of leadership, um, you know, uh, research has been you know has been done that in the in the whole ir in the uh, you know old hierarchy to the traditional hierarchy where power is centralized at the top, decision making goes from top to bottom. Uh, there's very little cross-organizational work, everyone's in their own little silo, that's given way to more networked ways of working. And so research is showing we are collaborating more than ever before, and we are dependent on others more than ever before. So in the past, I could just show up every day, do my job with my small little team in my silo, make a contribution to the organization, and most of my success is based on what me and my team do. Today, you know, my success is based on on, on how well you and your team support my team. And so I'm really now, you know, need to be accountable for building a strong relationship with you because the work is more horizontal, it's more cross-functional, and the teams modify and change. And so to your point, everyone needs to be a leader and everyone needs to be accountable, whether you're a frontline employee, a frontline supervisor, a mid-level uh, director or even into the executive ranks, the theme of accountability becomes more prominent because that's what we need. We need everyone to kind of understand what needs to be done and they need to step up to help us get things done. So how can you be accountable without having any power? Because I think that's the challenge for many mid-level managers or individual contributors or heck, even vice presidents when they have a very limited span of control. You know, you can be accountable to a certain point, but if you don't have the power to affect change or to deliver on promises, you're, you're almost stuck. You're stuck then. Does that, does that resonate then, with you? Yeah. In, in, in the book, the, the Leadership Contract, I write about that what you need is a dual response. So if I, as an individual leader... I'm fully committed to being truly accountable, but now I'm in an organization where um, I am not empowered, let's say, to make decisions. I am not given the authority to move ahead on priorities, uh, or I'm kept in a silo and I'm prevented from talking to a colleague in another part of the company. Uh, no matter how much I show up every day, I, I, there's limits to my success. And so I talk about that you need a, a, a dual response. You need the individual leader to step up. Um, but at the same time, the organization needs to be looking at a lot of times those those um, uh, uh, kind of hidden and unhidden barriers that get in the way of accountability. Um, and I think that's, that's the work that organizations need to do in the future because I, you're absolutely right. There are some unintended consequences of some of these practices we put in place that undermines one ability to feel accountable and be accountable. As we wrap up this segment, Vince, I'd like your thoughts on the person who is currently managing a team. He or she has a really great job. They've got, you know, five or 10 direct reports, but they really hate being a manager and they're stuck because this is the only pathway to more money and greater visibility and more, you know, bonus opportunities, more stock options, whatever it is, but they're in this role and they shouldn't be in this role. And maybe they know it, maybe they're self-aware enough to know it. 
what do they do? Because they clearly don't enjoy their job. Their team is probably not flourishing, but they're dependent on that paycheck. What do you think about that situation? Well, it's one that, that we do encounter. Um, and, and I've had, you know, after I, I, I deliver a keynote and I'm chatting with people at the end, it, you know, people kind of come to you one-on-one and, and, and I've heard this sort of scenario quite a bit. And part of what leads to that scenario is that we tend to have a, you know, a, a pretty long history of moving people who are very strong technical experts or are very strong individual contributor in a very specific discipline or domain, whether it's engineering or sales or accounting, uh, and we move them into leadership roles where then there's all this people stuff that they have to deal with and all this organizational stuff that they have to deal with. And often we don't give them the, the, um, the support and the training and the tools they need to be successful. So it's a pretty common situation. But in the leadership contract, you know, I, I talk about the idea, but you know, once you're in a leadership role, you have signed up for something really important. And you've entered a contract. And there are things that the company expects you to do. And that the very first term is that leadership is a decision. And, and so you have to decide, are you fully prepared to do those things that we need leaders to do. Sometimes it is about people, which isn't always fun. Sometimes is it around organizational stuff, which is sometimes complex and frustrating. Uh, uh, but that's, you know, that's ultimately the role. But in the end, I think people need to kind of make a personal decision to say, yeah, there might be, it might be more lucrative from a compensation standpoint, but am I happy? And so ultimately the question is, uh, what's the price you're paying for your unhappiness? And, and does it actually... Um, you know, uh, you know, what's the trade-off you're making by being in a role where you're not happy, but, but making some extra compensation uh, versus being in a role where you feel you're going to be adding greater value. Uh, it'll be really in your sweet spot. And, and a lot of times in, in our programs, in our workshops, and through our coaching, we help leaders get to that decision point. Uh, and I can tell you many examples where leaders have made those decisions that they decided, you know what, I'm going to step away from a leadership role, not forever, for a period of time. I'm going to go back and, and you know, go into a more of a, you know, technical individual contributor role. Uh, and they end up flourishing because they're happier. They're adding greater value. There's a little bit of a trade-off from a compensation standpoint, but what, you know, but at the end of the day, if you're personally happy, it means then you're better at, you're a better parent, you're a better citizen, you're a better friend, and, and you're having a better life overall. So I, those aren't easy decisions to make, but I think it is, it does begin with a personal decision that one needs to make. I love it. Leadership is a decision. My goodness. I couldn't agree with you more. And listen, when we come back from the break, Vince, we're going to talk about whether or not you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future of work. And we're going to ask you to talk about the leaders of the future and how they operate in the gig economy. So everybody, sit tight. We'll be right back with more Let's Fix Work. Hey, are you ready to podcast like a pro? then you need a secret weapon, someone who can make it easy, where all you have to do is show up and be the host. At One Stone Creative, that's what we do. Everything. Yeah, everything. Imagine, every time you sit down to record, you know what your topic is. You want a script? We can do that too. Then you record it, drop it in a folder, and that's it. Our team will take it from there. Production, show notes, uploads, blog posts, social media assets, swipe copy, like I said everything. Book a call with the podcast strategist today. Just go to onestonecreative.net slash podcast. That's onestonecreative.net slash podcast. And we'll take it from there. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Let's Fix Work. I'm Lori Rudiman, and I'm here today with author, leader, and consultant, Vince Molinaro. Vince, how you doing? I'm great. All right. You're hanging in there. I love it. Well, you know, I have a prevailing philosophy about the future of work and fixing work, and that is that we fix work by fixing ourselves. And so I love your message around accountability. That's super important for me. But I think we have a bit of a chicken and egg problem when it comes to our talent pool of available and future leaders. You know, everybody's disengaged at work and people are um, suffering from learned helplessness. So how do you create future leaders if workers are severely disengaged? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, you know, I think to your point, I think you've got to begin with the leaders. You know, uh, research by Gallup has found that um, leadership engagement or disengagement is actually quite high. Right? About 66% of managers uh, through some of their large studies have found are actively disengaged in their jobs. And, you know, if your leader is disengaged, it's really hard if you're a team member to feel, to feel engaged. And so while I think a lot of companies have been trying to fix the chronic engagement challenge by bringing in more foosball tables, improving the quality of the food in the cafeteria, or, you know, what, whatever it might be. And those are important things to do. I think the missed opportunity is really focusing on uh, leader engagement, because if you can increase and strengthen the leader engagement, you will just get a, a huge ripple effect on employees. And so to me, that's, that's clear to me of where the attention needs to, needs to be put in place. And, and that, I think, is, is how we have to kind of fix the engagement challenge that, uh, as you say, I mean, exists globally, really. Yeah. It's a real challenge, and it's been decades, and, and we haven't really moved the dial on engagement in any way. You know, if work sucks for senior leaders and managers and supervisors, you're right. What hope is there for individual contributors or people out on the line? I wonder what it takes to get these leaders engaged back in their work. Does it take um, cycling them out to your earlier point or giving them an opportunity to go back into a more technical role? But, you know, I know plenty of marketing leaders and human resources leaders who are burnt out. They're exhausted and they're not providing leadership to their teams, and yet they're holding on to these positions with their cold, dead hands, right? You, can, you cannot yeah. get them out of their jobs. So I just wonder if you have any strategies or any ideas for someone who's in a leadership role on how to feel more passion or more interest in your job again so that you're not killing the souls of the people who work for you. Yeah. Um, again, I think this, if we go back to the idea of the leadership contract and I you know, referenced the first point around leadership as a decision, the second point is around leadership as an obligation. And, and you have to understand that once you're in a leadership role, you do have an obligation to your employees, to your customers, to your shareholders, you know, to really be the leader, right? And, and, but you also have an obligation to yourself. So if you've gotten yourself to a place where you're feeling pretty burnt out and leadership roles are demanding so it, it's a it's a slippery slope if you're not if you're not you know deliberately paying attention to yourself investing in yourself taking care of your health uh, you know ensuring you've got the reserve power and the capacity uh, to actually do your leadership role and I think I think what ends up happening is sometimes leaders can get so uh, overwhelmed with the demands on them with, you know, I think the other thing that contributes to that is that we have a lot of people in leadership roles who are also working managers. So you're, yes, I'm leading a team, but you've got your own plate of work you've got to get done. And that is, is important. The other thing that ends up happening is a lot of leaders don't step back to think about, is my team strong enough? And they don't invest enough time making their team strong.
stronger because the stronger the, the team you make, the stronger your team becomes, the more you can let go and the more you're able to actually be the leader as opposed to be the doer. And that's, those are some, some chronic issues we've seen over and over again. And once you can help leaders kind of make that shift in their own mind from, am I, am I leading uh, or am I kind of doing as the first, the first, you know, kind of gut check they have to do, you can see them start making, making changes. I think in some cases, some people get themselves to a point where they do need to make that decision where the, like we talked before to say, is leadership for you? And I think a very noble leadership decision is for someone to know themselves uh, well enough to say, it's not for me. I'm going to add more value in a more of a technical role. I think we need more people being honest with themselves, putting up their hands to do that because that's where you're going to add more value. And, and so, and it's better that you come to that decision rather than the organization forces you out um, because ultimately then you're in control. You're, you're kind of making your own career decision. Uh, and I, I'd rather always have, I'd, you know, I'd rather have someone always be in control of their own destiny rather than have an organization force it upon you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. As a human resources lady, you know, in my former life who has had that conversation with men and women up and down the enterprise, there's nothing worse than stepping into a meeting with your HR leader and hearing that uh, it's too late and you're not doing well in your job and it's over. So I love your focus on self-awareness and accountability. And I wonder if you're optimistic or pessimistic about the future of work and leadership. You've seen a lot, you've seen a lot of work environments, you know where the world of work is going. What are your thoughts? Well, it's a, it's a fascinating time, right, to, to, be, to be really doing the work that you and I and others do. Um, and it does bring me back, though, because, you know, when I first started my consulting business, um, when I was 26, after I left that organization with uh, Zinta, it was 1990, and the future was the year 2000. And we were having many of the <laughs> wait, same... Wait, wait, just let's laugh yeah. about that for one second. Yeah. What was that like? I mean, back then, tell us what the future looked like in 1999. What were we afraid of? Well, we were, by 1999, we were, we were afraid of Y2K, which didn't materialize. Uh, mm. We were afraid of uh, the robots coming into manufacturing environments and decimating jobs. We were afraid of, uh, you know, automatic teller machines uh, eliminating bank tellers. Um, and, and, uh, and, you know, um, thousands and hundreds of thousands of people being completely displaced and never being able to ever work a day in their life again. And while, you know, raising the concerns, I believe, is really important, I think um, in many ways, looking back, a lot of those things didn't materialize. Y2K ended up being a dud, but the alarm got companies really working to prepare that it did not become an issue, right? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. You know, if you look at the banking industry, they put in a ton of automatic teller machines and they hired a ton of other uh, bank tellers and increase the number of branches based on you know research done by the labor economists and it's because you know automation tends to eliminate mundane uh, work that probably humans should have never been doing uh, and and creates the opportunity to create more higher value work that customers value and in many ways I feel that the conversations we're having today are very similar what's different is yeah, there is the robotics. The robots are still coming. Artificial intelligence is there. Um, and, and there's other, you know, the whole digital play. We are seeing, like in retail, uh, companies not surviving. There, there are real risks. And so to me, I think 
you know, you can kind of see the, the pessimism. I can understand it because will there be hundreds of thousands of people who will never work a day in their lives? Uh, or is it going to be optimistic? And to me, I think there's a choice. You know, when I go back to our research on leadership accountability globally, uh, you know, one of the key behaviors of, of really accountable leaders is their ability to be excited and optimistic about the future. And I can't tell you how many times in my travels, in my conversations with C-suite leaders and CHROs where they're saying, this is missing. Our leaders need to have that. So I don't think it's about being, you know, the, 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 the glass half full in a, in a naive way. I think we do need to be aware of the risks. But I got to believe there's so many things happening that would suggest work has the potential to, to really be fixed and be more meaningful and more equitable uh, than ever before. Uh, but, you know, if we uh, let the conversation happen and not get active in the debate, not get active in, the, you know, in creating new models of organization, then, yeah, the, the pessimistic story could emerge. But I, I, I would be more on the bullish side. Well, I love it because you're a nice uh, countervailing presence to my cynicism. I like to think that I'm a defensive pessimist. I'm just preparing for the worst, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's how I, yeah. I live. But we do need optimism in this world. We need people who are realists, but also optimistic and see a future vision. And I think that's a really good place to end the podcast today. I wonder if you could be an optimist for my audience to give my mid-career and leadership listeners some advice about how to fix work and be accountable and be the change they wish to see in their organizations? Well, you know, the, fir the first point, um, you know, the first point is that if you are a mid-career professional, you, you already have a lot of experience and wisdom uh, and judgment and maturity that you bring to your role. And, and that is really, really important, I believe, in times of change and uncertainty. Right, because you, you know you you you've 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 gone through a few laps, you've seen a few things, and I think you're better able at deciphering, you know, what is hype, what is real, and and what's a practical way forward. So I think that needs to be valued uh, around mid-career professionals. You know, the second part is that what's really clear in all the conversations I have with the companies I work with is this recognition is that we need leadership to be strong at every level. And in the past, in the old model, you know, we just kind of paid attention to that C-suite, that executive uh, 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 level. And now we're recognizing we need that mid-level to be really, really strong. We need the front line to be strong. And so to me, there's tremendous opportunity for someone kind of in a mid-career uh, a stage to, to really be thinking about the kind of leader they want to be and the kind of impact they want to be. The final part, I think, is that that mid-career stage is also an interesting time to kind of step back and reevaluate your life, to kind of say, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm midway there. How's it gone? And do I see myself continuing to do this? Or because of the opportunities that exist, the entrepreneurial opportunities that exist, Maybe it's time to try something different. And, and I think the more we can get people doing the work that's really connected to their purpose and passion, that's the way to fix you know, work. And that if I'm a leader who is, who is doing that and I set that tone every day, then you help your employees. You know, that becomes you know, invigorating and exciting for employees. And, and so I think that's kind of what we got to get to. So those are, I think, a few things I would be thinking about for someone at a kind of mid-stage mid of their career. I think that's really helpful. And you know, 
to your point, that's something that I have done just recently. I took a look at my life. I'm 43 years old. I asked myself, do I want to continue what I'm doing? And oh my God, Vince, now I've got a podcast. (laughs) So it's just a real important question to ask yourself, you know, and what comes out of that may surprise you because I never thought I would have a podcast and I never thought I would be having awesome conversations with people like you. And, you know, we're connected through our dear friend, Nick Morgan. And I think to that point, when you ask yourself, that question. It's good to pull in other people within your community and ask them for input on what should I be doing? Because Nick was very adamant. It's time for you, Lori, to start working on your speaking and your podcasting career. And by the way, talk to Vince. So isn't that fascinating how your network can be a part of that? So great advice. Hey, Vince, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on the web? Uh, well, uh, the, the, the core website is www.theleadershipcontract.com. Uh, that's the title of the book as well. Um, and I've just released a third edition of the book and a field uh, guide that accompanies it. So uh, the reader can kind of read the ideas and apply it personally with the field guide. And then I'm also available on uh, LinkedIn, uh, Vince Molinero. Um, and if people want to reach out, we'd be happy to connect with them. But I want to thank you for the opportunity. I want to congratulate you and kind of being a role model and how you've kind of evolved your own career because you've just created new opportunities to create so much value for so many of your podcast listeners and the people who interact with you in your speeches. So uh, congratulations on that. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And listen, it was so great to have you today and be well. And I hope to see you on the road sometime this summer or fall. Great. Thanks so much, Lori. You know I love to brag about my friends. I also like to listen to them. And right now, I'm listening to Jennifer McClure, host of the Impact Makers podcast. Jennifer is connecting with leaders across all industries to figure out how to make a difference at work and in the world. Here's what she's got going on. I believe strongly that each of us has the ability and the opportunity to positively impact people through our work and through how we choose to live our lives. The truth is that you've already impacted people in this world, even if you haven't been trying. I love what Jennifer has to say. And if you like what you're hearing right here on Let's Fix Work, you'll love what Jennifer's talking about on Impact Makers. So go to jennifermcclure.net forward slash iTunes and subscribe today. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Let's Fix Work with Vince Molinaro. I really love that guy, and we have got a link in the show notes to his book, The Leadership Contract. I hope you go out and get it. And don't forget to take Vince up on his offer to connect with him on LinkedIn, Twitter, eh, wherever your favorite social media platform is, Vince is there, and so am I. I'm at Let's Fix Work and L. Rudiman. Let's Fix Work is a production of One Stone Creative. Audra Casino and Megan Doherty make the show sound great. I owe them a debt of gratitude. If you like what you hear, please rate the podcast, subscribe, and when you review it, make sure you say something nice. And if you have something bad to say, just give me the feedback at hello at letsfixwork.com. Now that's all for today. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate all your support and feedback, and we'll see you next time on Let's Fix Work. Thank you for listening to this episode of Let's Fix Work. Wouldn't you love to get your hands on Lori's no-holds-barred, honest HR handbook for employees and pros alike? Download it for free at lorirudiman.com slash DIYHR.